The Life of the Spirit and the Life of Today by Evelyn Underhill. Chapter 6, Part B, The Life of the Spirit in the Individual. I will illustrate this from a living example, that of the Sadhu Sundar Singh. No one, I suppose, who came into personal contact with the Sadhu doubted that they were in the presence of a person who was living in the full sense the spiritual life. Even those who could not accept the symbols in which he described his experience and asked others to share it, acknowledged that there had been working in him a great transformation, that the sense of the abiding and eternal went with him everywhere and flowed out from him to calm and to correct our feverish lives. He fully satisfies in his own person the demands of Baron von Hugel's definition, both contact with and renunciation of the particular and fleeting seeking and finding of the eternal, incarnating within his own experience that transcendent otherness. Now the sadhu has discovered for himself and practices as the condition of his extraordinary activity, power and endurance, just that balance of life which St. Benedict's rule ordained. He is a wandering missionary, constantly undertaking great journeys, enduring hardship and danger, and practicing the absolute poverty of St. Francis, he is perfectly healthy, strong, extraordinarily attractive, full of power. But this power he is careful to nourish. His irreducible minimum is two hours spent in meditation and wordless communication with God at the beginning of each day. He prefers three or four hours when work permits, and a long period of prayer and meditation always precedes his public address. If forced to curtail or hurry these hours of prayer, he feels restless and unhappy and his efficiency is reduced. Prayer, he said, is as important as breathing, and we never say we have no time to breathe. 140. All this has been explained away by critics of the muscular Christian sort, who say that the sadhu's Christianity is of a typically eastern kind. But this is simply not true. It were much better to acknowledge that we more and more are tending to develop a typically western kind of Christianity, marked by the western emphasis on doing, and the Western contempt for being, and that if we go sufficiently far on this path, we shall find ourselves cut off from our source. The sadhu's Christianity is fully Christian, that is to say, it is whole and complete. The power in which he does his works is that in which St. Paul carried through his heroic missionary career. St. Benedict formed a spiritual family that transformed European culture. Wesley made the world his parish. Elizabeth Fry faced the Newgate criminals. It is idle to talk of the revival of a personal spiritual life among ourselves, or of a spiritual regeneration of society, for this can only come through the individual remaking of each of its members, unless we are willing, at the sacrifice of some personal convenience, to make a place and time for these acts of recollection, this willing and loving and even more fruitful, the more willing and loving communion with response to reality, to God. It is true that a fully lived spiritual life involves far more than this, but this is the only condition on which it will exist at all. Love, then, which is a willed tendency to God, prayer, which is willed communion with and experience of Him, are the two prime essentials in the personal life of the Spirit. They represent, of course, only our side of it and our obligation. This love is the outflowing response to another inflowing love, 
and this prayer the appropriation of a transcendental energy and grace. As the German theology reminds us, I cannot do the work without God, and God may not, or will not, without me. 141. And by these acts alone, faithfully carried through, all their costly demands fulfilled, all their gifts and applications accepted without resistance, and applied to each aspect of life, human nature can grow up to its full stature, and obtain access to all its sources of power. Yet this personal inward life of love and prayer shall not be too solitary. As it needs links with cultus, and so with the lives of its fellows, it also needs links with history, and so with the living past. These links are chiefly made by the individual through his reading, and such reading, such access to humanity's hoarded culture and experience, has always been declared alike by Christian and non-Christian asceticism to be one of the proper helps of the spiritual life. Though Hofting perhaps exaggerates when he reminds us that medieval art always depicts the saints as deeply absorbed in their books, and suggests that such brooding study directly induces contemplative states, 142, Yet it is true that the soul gains greatly from such communion with, and meek learning from, its cultural background. Ever more and more as it advances, it will discover within that background the records of those very experiences which it now must so poignantly relive, and which seem to it, as its own experience seems to every lover, unique. There it can find, without any betrayal of its secret, the wholesome assurance of its own normality, standards of comparison, companionship, alike in its hours of penitence, of light, and of deprivation. Yet such fruitful communion with the past is not the privilege of an aristocratic culture. It is seen in its perfection in many simple Christians who have found in the Bible all the spiritual food they need. The great literature of the Spirit tells its secrets to those alone who thus meet it on its own ground. Not only the works of Thomas a Kempis, of Roysbrook, or of St. Teresa, but also the biblical writers, and especially, perhaps, the Psalms and the Gospels, are read wholly anew by us at each stage of our advance. Comparative study of Hindu and Moslem writers proves this is equally true of the great literatures of other faiths. 143. Beginners may find in all these infinite stimulus, interest, and beauty, but to the mature soul they become road-books, of which experience proves the astonishing exactitude, giving it descriptions which it can recognize and directions that it needs, and constituting a steady check upon individualism. Now let us look at the emergence of this life which we have been considering, and at the typical path which it will or may follow in an ordinary man or woman of our own day, not a saint or genius reaching heroic levels, but a member of that solid, wholesome spiritual population which ought to fill the streets of the city of God. We noticed when we were studying its appearance in history that often this life begins in a sort of restlessness, a feeling that there is something more in existence, some absolute meaning, some more searching obligation that we have not reached. This dissatisfaction, this uncertainty and hunger, may show itself in many different forms. It may speak first to the intellect, to the moral nature, to the social conscience, even to the artistic faculty, or directly to the heart. Anyhow, its abiding quality is a sense of contraction, of limitation, a feeling of something more that we could stretch out to, and achieve, and be. 
its impulsion is always in one direction to a finding of some wider and more enduring reality some objective for the self's life and love it is a seeking of the eternal in some form i allow that thanks to the fog in which we live muffled such a first seeking and above all such a finding of the eternal is not for us a very easy thing the sense of quest of disillusion of something lacking is more common among modern men than its resolution and discovery nevertheless the quest does mean that there is a solution and that those who are persevering must find it in the end the world into which our desire is truly turned is somehow revealed to us. The revelation, always partial and relative, is of course conditioned by our capacity, the character of our longing, and the experiences of our past. In spiritual matters we behold that which we are, here following, on higher levels, the laws which govern aesthetic apprehension. So, dissatisfied with its worldview, and realizing that it is incomplete, the self seeks at first hand, though not always with clear consciousness of its nature, the reality which is the object of religion. When it finds this reality, the discovery, however partial, is for it the overwhelming revelation of an objective fact, and it is swept by a love and awe which it did not know itself to possess. And now it sees, dimly, yet in a sufficiently disconcerting way, the pattern in the mount, the rich complex of existence as it were transmuted, full of charity and beauty, governed by another series of adjustments. Life looks different to it. As Fox said, creation gives out another smell than before. 144. There is only one thing more disconcerting than this, and that is seeing the pattern actualized in a fellow human being, living face to face with human sanctity, in its great simplicity, and supernatural love, joy, peace. For when we glimpse eternal beauty in the universe, we can say with the hero of Callista, It is beyond me. But when we see it transfiguring human character, we know that it is not beyond the power of the race. It is here, to be had. Its existence as a form of life creates a standard, and lays an obligation on us all. Suppose then that the self, urged by this new pressure, accepts the obligation and measures itself by the standard. It then becomes apparent that this fact which it sought for and has seen is not merely added to its old universe, as in medieval pictures paradise with its circles overarches the earth. This reality is all-penetrating and has transfigured each aspect of the self's old world. It now has a new and more exacting scale of values, which demand from it a new series of adjustments, ask it, and with authority, to change its life. What next? The next thing, probably, is that the self finds itself in rather a tight place. It is wedged into a physical order that makes innumerable calls on it, and innumerable suggestions to it, which has for years monopolized its field of consciousness and set up habits of response to its claims. It has to make some kind of a break with this order, or at least with its many attachments thereto, and stretch to the wider span demanded by the new and larger world. And further, it is in possession of a complex psychic life, containing many insubordinate elements, many awkward bequests from a primitive past. That psychic life has just received the powerful and direct suggestion of the spirit, and, for the moment, it is subdued to that suggestion. But soon it begins to experience the inevitable conflict between old habits and new demands, 
between the life lived in the particular and in the universal spirit, and only through complete resolution of that conflict will it develop its full power. So the self quickly realizes that the theologian's war between nature and grace is a picturesque way of stating a real situation, and further, that the demand of all religions for a change of heart, that is, of the deep instinctive nature, is the first condition of a spiritual life, and hence that its hands are fairly full. It is true that an immense joy and hope come with it to this business of tackling imperfection, of adjusting itself to the newly found center of life. It knows that it is committed to the forward movement of a power which may be slow but which nothing can gainsay. Nevertheless, the first thing that power demands from it is courage, and the next an unremitting, vigorous effort. It will never again be able to sink back cozily into its racial past. Consciousness of disharmony and incompleteness now brings the obligation to mend the disharmony and achieve a fresh synthesis. This is felt with a special sharpness in the moral life, where the irreconcilable demands of natural self-interest and of spirit assume their most intractable shape. Old habits and paths of discharge, which have almost become automatic, must now, it seems, be abandoned. New paths, in spite of resistances, must be made. Thus it is that temptation, hard conflict, and bewildering perplexities usher in the life of the spirit. These are largely the results of our biological past continuing into our fluctuating, half-made present, and they point towards a psychic stability, an inner unity we have not yet attained. This realization of ourselves as we truly are emerging with difficulty from our animal origin, tinctured through and through with the self-regarding tendencies and habits it has imprinted on us, this realization, or self-knowledge, is humility, the only soil in which the spiritual life can germinate. And modern man with his great horizons, his ever clearer vision of his own close kinship with life's origin, his small place in the time stream, in the universe, in God's hand, the relative character of his best knowledge and achievement is surely everywhere being persuaded to this royal virtue. Recognition of this his true creaturely status, with its obligations, the only process of pain and struggle needed, if the demands of generous love are ever to be fulfilled in him, and his many-leveled nature is to be purified and harmonized and develop all its powers, this is repentance. He shows not only his sincerity, but his manliness and courage by his acceptance of all that such repentance entails on him. For the healthy soul, like the healthy body, welcomes some trial and roughness and is well able to bear the pains of education. Psychologists regard such an education, harmonizing the rational or ideal with the instinct of life, the change of heart which leaves the whole self working together without inner conflict towards one objective, as the very condition of a full and healthy life, but it can only be achieved in its perfection by the complete surrender of heart and mind to a third term, transcending alike the impulsive and the rational. The life of the spirit, in its supreme authority, and its identification with the highest interests of the race, does this, harnessing man's fiery energies to the service of the light. Therefore, in the rich new life on which the self enters, one strand must be that of repentance, catharsis, self-conquest, a complete contrition which is the earnest of complete generosity, 
uncalculated response. And, dealing as we are now with average human nature, we can safely say that the need for such ever-renewed self-scrutiny and self-purgation will never in this life be left behind. For sin is a fact, though a fact which we do not understand, and now it appears and must evermore remain an offense against love, hostile to this intense new attraction, and marring the self's willed tendency towards it. The next strand we may perhaps call that of recollection. For the recognizing and the cure of imperfection depends on the compensating search for the perfect, and its enthronement as the supreme object of our thought and love. The self, then, soon begins to feel a strong impulsion to some type of inward withdrawal and concentration, some kind of prayer, though it may not use this name or recognize the character of its mood. As it yields to the strange new drawing, such recollection grows easier. It finds that there is a veritable inner world, not merely of fantasy, but of profound heart-searching experience, where the soul is in touch with another order of realities and knows itself to be an inheritor of eternal life. Here unique things happen. A power is at work, and new apprehensions are born. And now, for the first time, the self discovers itself to be striking a balance between this inner and the outer life, and, in its own small way, but still most fruitfully, enriching action with the fruits of contemplation. If it will give to the learning of this new art, to the disciplining and refining of this affective thought, even a fraction of the diligence which it gives to the learning of a new game, it will find itself repaid by a progressive purity of vision, a progressive sense of assurance, an ever-increasing delicacy of moral discrimination and demand. Psychologists, as we have seen, divide men into introverts and extroverts, but as a matter of fact we must regard both these extreme types as defective. A whole man should be supple in his reactions to both the inner and to the outer world. The third strand in the life of the spirit, for this normal self which we are considering, must be the disposition of complete surrender. More and more advancing in this inner life, it will feel the imperative attraction of reality, of God, and it must respond to this attraction with all the courage and generosity of which it is capable. I am trying to use the simplest and the most general language, and to avoid emotional imagery, though it is here, in telling of this perpetually renewed act of self-giving and dedication, that spiritual writers most often have recourse to the language of the heart. It is indeed in a spirit of intensest and humble adoration that generous souls yield themselves to the drawing of that mysterious beauty and unchanging love with all that it entails. But the form which the impulse to surrender takes will vary with the psychic makeup of the individual. To some it will come as a sense of vocation, a making over of the will to the purposes of the kingdom, a type of consecration which may not be overtly religious, that may be concerned with the self-forgetting quest of social excellence, of beauty, or of truth. By some it will be felt as an illumination of the mind, which now discerns once for all true values, and accepting these must uphold and strive for them in the teeth of all opportunism. By some, and these are the most blessed, as a breaking and remaking of the heart. Whatever the form it takes, the extent in which the self experiences the peace, joy and power of living at the level of spirit will depend on the completeness and single-mindedness of this its supreme act of self-simplification any reserves anything in its makeup which sets up resistances 
and this means generally any form of egotism, will mar the harmony of the process. And, on the other hand, such a real simplification of the self's life as is here demanded, uniting on one object, the intellect, will and feeling too often split among contradictory attractions, is itself productive of inner harmony and increased power, productive, too, of that noble endurance which counts no pain too much in the service of reality. Here, then, we come to the fact, valid for every level of spiritual life, which lies behind all the declarations concerning surrender, self-loss, dying to live, dedication, made by writers on this theme, all involve a relaxing of tension, letting ourselves go without reluctance in the direction in which we are most profoundly drawn, a cessation of our struggles with the tide, our kicks against the pricks that spur us on. The inward aim of the self is towards unification with a larger life, emergence with reality, which it may describe under various contradictory symbols, or may not be able to describe at all, but which it feels to be the fulfillment of existence. It has learnt, though this knowledge may not have passed beyond the stage of feeling, that the universe is one simple texture in which all things have their explanation and their place. Combing out the confusions which enmesh it, losing its sham and separate life and finding its true life there, it will know what to love and how to act. The goal of this process, which has been called entrance into the freedom of the will of God, is the state described by the writer of the German theology when he said, I would fain be to the eternal goodness what his own hand is to a man. 145. For such a declaration not only means a willed and skillful working for God, a practical siding with perfection, becoming its living tool, but also close union with and sharing of the vital energy of the spiritual order, a feeding on and using of its power, its very life-blood, complete docility to its inward direction, abolition of separate desire. The surrender is therefore made not in order that we may become limp pietists, but in order that we may receive more energy and do better work, by a humble self-subjection more perfectly helping forward the thrust of the spirit and the primal human business of incarnating the eternal here and now. Its justification is in the arduous but untiring, various but harmonious activities that flow from it, the enhancement of life which it entails. It gives us access to our real sources of power that we may take from them and, spending generously, be energized anew. So the cord on which those events which make up this personal life of the spirit are to be strung is completed and we see that it consists of four strands. Two are dispositions of the self, penitence and surrender. Two are activities, inward recollection and outward work. All four make stern demands on its fortitude and good will. And each gives strength to the rest, for they are not to be regarded as separate and successive states, a discrete series through which we must pass one by one, leaving penitence behind us when we reach surrendered love, but as the variable yet enduring and inseparable aspects of one rich life, phases in one complete and vital effort to respond more and more closely to reality. Nothing, perhaps, is less monotonous than the personal life of the spirit. In its humility and joyous love, its adoration and its industry, it may find self-expression in any one of the countless activities of the world of time. It is both romantic and austere, both adventurous and holy. 
full of fluctuation and unearthly color, it yet has its dark patches as well as its light. Since perfect proof of the supersensual is beyond the span of human consciousness, the element of risk can never be eliminated. We are obliged in the end to trust the universe and live by faith. Therefore the awakened soul must often suffer perplexity, share to the utmost the stress and anguish of the physical order, and, chained as it is to a consciousness accustomed to respond to that order, must still be content with flashes of understanding, and willing to bear long periods of destitution when the light is failed. The further it advances, the more bitter will these periods of destitution seem to it. It is not from the real men and women of the spirit that we hear soft things about the comfort of faith, for the true life of faith gives everything worth having and takes everything worth offering. With unrelenting blows it welds the self into the stuff of the universe, subduing it to the universal purpose, doing away with the flame of separation. Though joy and inward peace, even in desolation, are dominant marks of those who have grown up into it, still it offers to none a succession of supersensual delights. The life of the spirit involves the sublimation of that pleasure-pain rhythm which is characteristic of normal consciousness, and if for it pleasure becomes joy, pain becomes the cross. Toil, abnegation, sacrifice are therefore of its essence, but these are not felt as a heavy burden because they are the expression of love. It entails a willed tension and choice, a noble power of refusal, which are not entirely covered by being in tune with the infinite. As our life comes to maturity, we discover to our confusion that human ears can pick up from the infinite many incompatible tunes, but cannot hear the whole symphony, and the melody confided to our care, the one which we alone perhaps can contribute, and which taxes our powers to the full, has in it not only the notes of triumph, but the notes of pain. The distinctive mark, therefore, is not happiness, but vocation. Work demanded, and power given, but given only on condition that we spend it and ourselves on others without stint. These propositions, of course, are easily illustrated from history, but we can also illustrate them in our own persons if we choose. Should we choose this, and should life of the Spirit be achieved by us, and it will only be done through daily discipline and attention to the spiritual, a sacrifice of comfort to its interests, following up the intuition which sets us on the path. What benefits may we as ordinary men expect it to bring to us and to the community that we serve? It will certainly bring into life new zest and new meaning, a widening of the horizon and consciousness of security, a fresh sense of joys to be had and of work to be done. The real spiritual consciousness is positive and constructive in type. It does not look back on the past sins and mistakes of the individual or of the community, but in its other-world faith and this-world charity is inspired by a forward-moving spirit of hope. Seeking alone the honor of eternal beauty, and because of its invulnerable sense of security, it is adventurous. The spiritual man and woman can afford to take desperate chances and live dangerously in the interests of their ideals, being delivered from the many unreal fears and anxieties which commonly torment us, and knowing the unimportance of possessions and of so-called success. The joy which waits on disinterested love and the confidence which follows surrender cannot fail them. Moreover, the inward harmony and assurance, the consciousness of access to that spirit who is in a literal sense health's eternal spring, means a healing of nervous miseries, 
and invigoration of the usually ill-treated mind and body, and so an all-around increase in happiness and power. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. This, said St. Paul, who knew by experience the worlds of grace and of nature, is what a complete man ought to be like. Compare this picture of an equable and fully harmonized personality with that of a characteristic neurasthenic, a bored sensualist, or an embittered worker, concentrated on the struggle for a material advantage, and consider that the central difference between these types of human success and human failure abides in the presence or absence of a spiritual conception of life. We do not yet know the limits of the upgrowth into power and happiness which complete and practical surrender to this conception can work in us, or what its general triumph might do for the transformation of the world. And it may even be that beyond the joy and renewal which come from self-conquest and unification, a level of spiritual life most certainly open to all who will really work for it, and beyond that deeper insight, more wide-spreading love, and perfection of adjustment to the here and now, which we recognize and reverence as the privilege of the pure in heart. Beyond all these, it may be that life still reserves for man another secret and another level of consciousness, a closer identification with reality, such as eye hath not seen or ear heard. And note that the spiritual life which we have here considered is not an aristocratic life. It is a life of which the fundamentals are given by the simplest kinds of traditional piety and have been exhibited over and over again by the simplest souls. An unconditional self-surrender to the divine will under whatever symbols it may be thought of, for we know that the very crudest of symbols is often strong enough to make a bridge between the heart and the eternal and so be a vehicle of the spirit of life. A little silence and leisure, a great deal of faithfulness, kindness and courage all this is within the reach of anyone who cares enough for it to pay the price footnotes 140 streeter and apasami the sadhu page 98 100 141 theologica germanica 142 hofting the philosophy of religion 3b 143 there are, for instance, several striking instances in the autobiography of the Maharishi Devendranath Tagore. 144. Fox's Journal, Volume 1. 145. Theologica Germanica. End of Chapter 6b